Today we'll be exploring the impact that Christianity has had on science. Now, I know it may seem strange to many people to suggest that Christianity has had any significant influence on science. Often it is assumed that the relationship between them is that of conflict and that the history has been a long and troubled one. Now, why is this perception so common? I think some contemporary controversies about evolution and creation are thought to be typical of the relationship between science and religion in the past. In the 1896 book by Andrew Dickinson White, it was a huge and influential book, 900 pages, but uh, maybe people just took the title, but the title was A History of, War of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. And in it, Dickinson, Dixon framed the relationship between science and theology as warfare. As historian Mark Knoll and others have pointed out, the staying power of White's image or metaphor has been extraordinary. Popular accounts of historical episodes like the Roman Catholic Church's condemnation of Galileo uh, for his teaching that the... Uh, you know, that the earth revolves around the sun instead of the other way. It is often presented as an example of how Christianity and science have always interacted negatively in opposition to one another. Now, while it is true that the Catholic Church resisted at the time, that the resisted it at the time, there were, in fact, many Christians on both sides, as there often are. After all, Galileo himself was a strong believer with many Christian supporters, and the records show that he argued vi vigorously that a sun-centered view of the universe, cosmology, did not undermine the Bible. In fact, he attempted to make theological arguments from the Bible in favor of it, and that was what got him into trouble. The Pope and him were actually friends, but when he was, you know, getting into the authority and teaching of the Bible, well, that's my sphere, the Pope would say, so to speak. And, uh, and so that's partly what really exacerbated that conflict. Now, you may be interested to know that historians of science have known for quite some time about the significantly positive role that Christianity has played, both in the emergence and the persistence of modern science in the West. Notice, for example, what that resident authority, Wikipedia, article says about Christianity and science. Most scientific and technological innovations prior to the scientific revolution were achieved by societies organized by religious traditions. Ancient Christian scholars pioneered individual elements of the scientific method. Historically, Christianity has been and still is a patron of sciences, and many Christian clergy have been active in the sciences and have made significant contributions to the development of science. Some of you may be wondering, really? I'd like to see the footnotes on that. Well, we'll look at a few this morning. Christians have often been influential in the history of science, not in spite of their faith and belief in God, but because of it. As I pointed out in my introduction to this series a number of weeks ago, Christians have often been on the forefront of scientific discoveries in many, many fields. Indeed, the very presuppositions underlying science are rooted in Christian belief, 
You know, a presupposition is something I assume to be true and therefore act on it. You presumed that the chair was going to hold you up this morning, and it did. Okay, thankfully. But what many, uh, many people are familiar with Sir Isaac Newton, right? And his great achievement, his law of thermodynamics and motion, etc. But what many don't know is that the novelty of Newton's achievement lay in his presupposition and conviction that the God who made and gave moral laws to guide human behavior probably also made laws to guide nature. Laws just waiting to be discovered. A, a few Bible verses. Psalm chapter 19, 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. There are no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. And uh, Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it upon the seas and established it on the waters. How did he do that? That's what he wanted to know. Uh, I will leave you to read Proverbs chapter 8. It's a wonderful account of wisdom there at the very beginning with God and how wisdom was woven right into the uh, fabric of creation. The fundamental Christian belief in one God, a personal and rational creator who made our wor world orderly and understandable, intelligible, that proved to be absolutely essential for the scientific enterprise. As Albert Einstein noted, the mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. That is, that we can make sense of it at all. The great British mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said that without this Christian presupposition, there would be no science. He noted that the origin of science required Christianity's insistence on the rationality of God. In contrast to random chance, or dumb luck, or the unpredictability of the gods in, in Greek uh, religion. Princeton professor and world-class philosopher of science Hans Halverson argues for an intrinsic connection between the theistic worldview, that is a worldview of God, and the scientific one. Theology and science are complementary rather than contrasting disciplines since they are concerned with a search for truth. Physical truth, metaphys metaphysical truth. Science seeks to understand natural causes for natural ph phenomena, not divine intervention in a test tube, right? Can't analyze that. But this method did not arise from atheism, he says. On the contrary, the first scientists believed our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves. Uh, Robert Gossetti, uh, a Franciscan bishop and the first chancellor of the Oxford University, was the one back already in the 13th, uh, 1200s, who proposed the inductive experimental method, an approach to knowledge of our world that was further advanced by his fellow Franciscan monk and student, Roger Bacon. Bacon believed that all things must be verified by experience, that is, 
Don't just take superstition or speculation, you know, as many people were. And another influential Franciscan monk, William of Ockham, also argued that knowledge of the natural world needed to be gained inductively. Uh, Occam's razor, some of you may have heard that. His, that basic principle was that the simplest explanation is usually the best one. Occam not only had a tremendous influence on science, but his Christian convictions and theological writings, I was interested to discover, hundreds of years later, deeply impacted Martin Luther in his own spiritual life. Almost 300 years after Roger Bacon, another Bacon, Francis Bacon, gave further momentum to the inductive method by actively recording his experimental results. He has been called the, the practical creator of scientific induction, of the research method. He only, not only pursued his scientific interests, but also his theological ones. He wrote books, for example, on Psalms, on the book of Psalms and on prayer. By introducing the inductive empirical method guided by rational, thoughtful procedures, Bacon, Occam, and Francis Bacon departed a significant degree from the ancient Greek perspective of Aristotle, which had, one writer described, a stranglehold on the world for 1,500 years. Indeed, much of the opposition that we find that took place in the Catholic Church against people like Copernicus and Galileo, because the church authorities were guided more by Aristotle's view of the world, okay, which said that the earth was the center of the universe, than they were Christian. The inductive method also, you know, where you have to actually get your hands involved and do work for Greeks, that was slave labor. There is no way any of the Greek philosophers would have done anything that required getting their hands dirty and doing physical work at all. Absolutely not. Never would. A far more accurate description of the historic relationship between science and faith is that suggested in a, in a recent lecture by Dr. Alistair McGrath entitled, Science and Faith, Conflicting or Enriching? McGrath, by the way, is professor of science and religion at Oxford. Uh, I've had him as a professor a few times. He holds a PhD in, bio, in uh, molecular biophysics and a PhD in historical theology. So, and bringing those two fields together. And he sees science as enriching and, and faith as enriching and complementing each other. Together, he said, they lead to a richer and deeper vision of life. And this second model, the enriching model, was how most Christians viewed their work in the past and the present. The famous astronomer and mathematician, uh, Johannes Kepler, believed that he was simply thinking God's thoughts after him. Another godly pioneer of science, Blaise Pascal, wrote that faith tells us what senses cannot but it is not contrary to their findings. It simply transcends without contradicting them. In other words, the knowledge that God has given us about him in his word integrates with what we discover about him in his world. As Pascal went on to explain, the Christian's God does not merely consist of a God who is the author of mathematical truths and the order of elements. 
He goes on to say, that's a pagan notion. But the God, he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Christians is a God of love and consolation. Science, theology, and history are, are three different ways in which we describe and explain the reality that we find around us. And God designed them to be enriching, not conflicting. This is actually how we function in much of our life without giving much thought to it. Uh, the British geologist Frank Rhodes has used a simple but helpful example of that there are different levels of explaining reality, and together they enrich our understanding. For example, he says, think of a kettle that is boiling. Question, why is that kettle boiling? Well, since Rhodes is quite smart, he, he gives his first answer, and he says, well, the kettle is boiling because of energy conversion. Uh, there's this thing called electricity, and it converts it into heat, and it could go on quite complicated, but that is why the kettle is boiling. And then he says, well, there's a second explanation of why the kettle is boiling. He says, that kettle is boiling because I wanted a cup of tea. Hmm. Here we are given two explanations. You know, a scientific one, energy conversion, and the other one, why I want a cup of tea. To either of these explanations invalidate the other. No. Okay. We gain a richer understanding of why the kettle is boiling with the science. I was thinking back to the summer series that I did on divine signposts in, everyday, in our everyday world. And I was reminded of some of the things we talked about. Water. How it is this unique properties that make life possible on earth. That understanding deepened and deepens our appreciation for it. Well... Understanding the scientific properties of something like water can enhance our appreciation of it, but a merely scientific explanation can be incredibly reductionistic. That's a big word, but it just reduces it to less, shrinks it. For Christians, the most important question is not, what does science say we are? But who does God, what does God say we are? Who does God say we are? Uh, reminded, there was an episode of House MD. Remember that TV show, some of you? You can still watch it on the reruns. Uh, and in his frustration with a patient that has really ticked him off, he berates her by telling her, you're mortal, just a bag of cells and waste with an expiration date. Wow, yeah, I know, but House, if you know him, is a... Now, a merely scientific description, even a more eloquent one than that, reduces our humanity. It's not that scientific knowledge doesn't matter. It enables us to fly airplanes, purify water, effectively dispose of sewage and treat it, and cure a host of diseases. Our daily lives depend so much on what we have learned but as much as I value science, I do not believe scientific knowledge is the most important kind. And neither does the Bible. And while Christians hold a, a wide range of views on how to read the, the Bible's creation account, for example, and how these relate to science, one thing is clear. 
Genesis is not primarily concerned with science and scientific information. As Galileo was fond of pointing out, he said the Holy Spirit intended to teach us in the Bible how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Not a scientific textbook. And a wonderful contemporary writer, Rebecca McLaughlin, puts it this way. The lack of scientific detail in the creation account is not an oversight. Rather, it is a deliberate prioritizing of a more important message. She goes on in her book, uh, Confronting Christianity, to say, God could have, just be, could have begun the Bible with a detailed scientific description of the universe. Just as I could tuck my kids in at bed at night and tell them they are mammals whose genetic identity arises from a combination of my DNA and that of their other progenitor. These statements are true, but right now, she said, it's more important for my children to know that I am their mother and I love them. In fact, if I gave them scientific information without relational information, I would be robbing them of the truth and utterly failing to meet their needs. Amen? Amen. It's the relational information provided by God's word and by the sending of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to give his life to pay for our sin debt and to reconcile us to himself. That is what makes the study of God's world so enriching because we have a relationship with the one who made it all, who is actively at work in the world. Indeed, many have testified that studying God's world became, became for them an act of worship when they knew the one who made it. In my reading, I came across this prayer by James Clark Maxwell, with which I want to conclude this message. And so, our worship team, you can come up at this time. In my preparation for this message, I discovered that Einstein kept uh, pictures of, three of his three scientific heroes on the wall of his study. Uh, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Maxwell. I didn't even know who James Maxwell was. Apparently, he's been credited with the second great unification of physics, bringing together electro electricity, magnetism, and light. No wonder I didn't know of him. I couldn't understand it. But he was an evangelical Presbyterian who became an elder in the Church of Scotland, as well as he was doing both works. And I want to close with his prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, you created man in your own image and made him a living soul that he might seek after you and have dominion over your creatures. Teach us to study the works of your hands that we may subdue the earth to our use and strengthen the reason for your service and so to receive your blessed word that we may believe on him whom you sent to give us the knowledge of salvation and the remission of our sins, all which we ask in the name of this same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thinking how this, uh, this topic, relationship of Christianity and science, when I was in, first went to college, 
I think the glasses that I wore were Christianity and science are in conflict with one another. And then in my uh, third or fourth year, I was so interested in the topic, I did a paper that looked at some of the history of it. And I exchanged that pair of glasses for more what what McGrath calls an enriching model. And uh, I've really appreciated that as I've, the history as I've read that over the years, uh, not an expert, but not a novice, uh, kind of an interesting, you know, an interest in it. And at the heart of the universe, some think there's a great mind at the heart of the universe. All of the information, it is a great mind. But Daryl Johnson said, at the heart of the universe, why he's Father, Son, and Spirit, is a glorious relationship. And it is out of that glorious relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit that they wanted to share that the world came forth, that Jesus came to restore us to him. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. If you would like prayer, we will have a prayer team up front here and uh, take advantage of it.